What are some of the biggest questions on the minds of Opportunity Zone investors? And what have been some of the most surprising real estate market outcomes from the coronavirus pandemic? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Eight months after the coronavirus pandemic really took hold here in the United States, how are markets responding and what is going through the minds of investors? Here to discuss that topic and more with me today is Pete Lamassa. Pete is Managing Director in the Capital Markets Group at Bridge Investment Group and Deal Captain of their Qualified Opportunity Zone Strategy. Pete joins me today from his home office in New York. Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Thank you. Yes, let's dive right in here. Uh, You know, I mentioned we are in the midst of a global pandemic that has roiled the markets. What's keeping your investors awake at night, Pete? And what questions are your investors asking? Yeah, well, you know, we've been talking about qualified opportunity zones now, uh, basically nonstop for about two years. It started out with a lot of very high-level educational calls and meetings, and um, and then we, of course, had to walk people through how the rules worked and what our strategy is. I mean, obviously, this requires a 10-year hold, so people really want to understand what they're getting into. But I think right now, because of the pandemic, that one of the hottest topics is geography. Um, you know, even though it's very likely that the coronavirus problems will be well behind us when we deliver our properties to market in two to three years, people, of course, are a little bit more wary of the big cities. Um, And that's where we think our secondary market strategy is even more attractive today. Um, We tend to focus on fast-growing secondary markets, so you'll never find us really in uh, midtown Manhattan or downtown Miami. Uh, we We think that it's a much more compelling opportunity that can be found in places like uh, Austin and Sacramento, Atlanta, Salt Lake City, Scottsdale. So this is where the growth is. Uh, and we're looking for robust household formation and job growth, high occupancy and good absorption. Um, we did an analysis of the 20 odd markets that we've committed to across the last two years. And we've seen that our population growth in our cities has been about 50% faster than the overall uh, U.S. population. And I think the other way that we address that is, uh, you know, we point to the fact that we often like to be a little bit outside of downtown. So instead of building uh, a high rise in a very crowded downtown, our, our strategy is typically building a less expensive and maybe easier to build low rise. We want to provide great amenities like rooftop cooking areas, dog, dog parks, dog parks, um, good common space, state-of-the-art fitness, and we want to be really competitive to those downtown rents so you can get perhaps a cheaper experience, a little more room, and you're not packed in um, in, in, a, in a high-rise, which is, I think, what people are, are, are really wary about. The other thing that comes up a lot now, the other thing that I would say is, you know, keeping, uh, keeping our, um, you know, the folks that we're talking to up at night is the way that the political landscape can change. You know, what does a potential Biden administration mean for QOZs? You know, for this question, we really just point people directly to the vice president's platform, which is posted on his website. You know, he supports the program. He would like to see 
better reporting and better accountability. And quite frankly, we agree. We're very confident that we're meeting any standards that the government could implement. Another question that comes up is, you know, what about higher taxes? What if taxes go up? When people ask that question, we point out that yes, pushing that 2020 gain to 2026 would result in a higher, that, that would be in a higher tax regime for capital gains. And that would mean that you'd pay a little bit more. But we also remind them that any investment that they make instead of a QOZ would also be diminished by higher taxes. So in fact, higher taxes would actually increase the QOZ benefit relative to a taxable investment. It would increase the delta between doing a QOZ and not. And it, Jimmy, it actually takes a couple minutes for clients to really think that through. But once they get it, 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 it gets them to a place where they're a little bit more comfortable with the QOZ. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I've been trying to drive that point home constantly on this podcast. It's come up on numerous episodes over the last several months. If, if tax rates go up, it's actually even more in your interest to invest in qualified opportunity zones, as you rightly point out. Uh, by the way, you did mention uh, some uncertainty about the election. I'd just like to point out for our listeners, uh, this is airing the day after Election Day, but we're actually recording it on Thursday, October 29th. So we don't know what the result is of the election, and uh, possibly we still don't know what the result is of the election, even when you're listening to this. I'm not sure uh, how long it might take to, to sort out those numbers, but just wanted to mention that when we we're recording this, we don't know who has won or who will win the election in terms of the presidency and, and the Senate. Uh, so actually, I want to take a step back now. Pete, uh, Bridge Investment Group, you guys have a $1 billion strategy for investing in opportunity zones. You've raised and deployed $1 billion in opportunity zones so far. Can you tell us a little bit more about who is Bridge, uh, what its mission is, and, and how you came to work at Bridge, and what your role is in the company, Pete? Yeah, so um, we're a vertically integrated real estate manager. We've been around since 1991, so we're coming up on 30 years. And we've got about $22 billion of real estate under management. We only invest in the U.S. because this is the most liquid market in the world. People from all over the world want to, want to buy here. We have six verticals. Our flagship, our strategy is multifamily. And then over the years, we have very deliberately and thoughtfully moved into new businesses. Office, debt, seniors, workforce and affordable housing, and of course, opportunity zones. Across all these businesses, we focus on fast-growing secondary markets. Like I said before, you know, we're not interested in Manhattan. We're not interested in downtown Miami. We, we like the cities like Sacramento, Austin, Salt Lake, Atlanta. And we also like to invest in, the, in select first-ring suburbs. When the Qualified Opportunity Zone rules were passed in late 17, and they started getting socialized and discussed in 18, we concluded that this was a business that we think Bridge is very well-suited for. You know, at $22 billion, we can build a team and we can put the appropriate resources on this. And since we're vertically integrated, we've got thousands of bridge employees working and living in our market, managing our properties, interacting with our tenants and residents. We think having those people on the ground gives us an information edge over the competition. So we went out, we built a 17 person team. And to our knowledge, no other firm has a team as deep or as seasoned as ours. And we rolled out our QOZ strategy in early 2019. We forged partnerships with a handful of national wirehouses and wealth managers. And after working through their exhaustive due diligence and research process, they made our strategy available to their clients. So fast forward to today, um, between over this year and last year, we have approximately $1.5 billion allocated or committed to 28 QOZ properties in our fast growing target markets. 
That's great. That's great. That's a that's a pretty good track record or pretty good amount of capital that you've raised and deployed or have had committed so far. And getting on those wirehouse platforms, definitely key to being able to raise capital from investors. Uh, getting back to the pandemic now, uh, what to you has been surprising about this pandemic or the market's response to it? What have you found that's been surprising to you? A couple things. You know, I joined Bridge about 18 months ago. And I, in the five years before I got here, when I was in a different capital raising role, I started to recognize how durable multifamily is as an asset class. You know, I would often say it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter where the S&P 500 is, people need to live somewhere. And yield-hungry investors are always going to pay up for the reliable yield that comes from multifamily. So little did I know that once I got here at Bridge, we would find ourselves going through a pandemic, economic stress, health stress eviction moratoriums. I mean, Jimmy, this literally is the ultimate stress tester, the ultimate stress test that an asset manager could have. We manage about 40,000 multifamily units around the country. This is regular multifamily. We have, obviously haven't completed any of the QOZ properties yet. Across the 40,000 apartments that we manage in our regular multifamily strategy, which is a value-add strategy, we see rental payments in the mid-90s. 94, 95% of our tenants have been paying their rent. And we've seen occupancy ticking up faster than our original underwriting. You know, so you ask me what's surprising. Maybe I'm not surprised by that, but I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to report that our multi-strategy, multi-family strategy has, been, has remained really strong. And as we tee up our QOZ strategy, which will be 85 to 95% multifamily, it's great to point to this outcome. I think another thing that's been kind of surprising is that the competitors that we saw last year we haven't seen come back. So you know, last year, as I said, we, were, we, were, we partnered with some national wirehouses and wealth managers, and there were other funds that were available uh, in the uh, other, other uh, strategies from other firms that were available in, on those platforms. And a lot of those institutional managers that had uh, nationally available strategies have not come back in 2019. Um, so we're, we're pretty excited about that because uh, we have seen less competition for the assets that we're, that we're looking at. And we think ultimately when we deliver these assets in a couple of years and when we sell these assets in 10 years, it might mean there's also a, a somewhat diminished amount of, of competition out there. So I think those are probably the two biggest uh, surprises or things that, that caught my eye. Yeah, that's interesting. The uh, diminished competition. What do you think may have led to to that diminished competition? Some of those competitors of yours um, not being around anymore. This is a a pretty labor intensive business when you're thinking about um, the the the, um, the what we're doing in the capital markets group. Um, basically, uh, I think that some of our competitors are you know maybe ten times or twenty times the size of us in terms of assets under management, and I think it just made more sense for some of our competitors to focus on their flagship strategies where they could raise uh, you know, $20 billion funds and $10 billion funds uh, and get, you know, get commitments from, uh, from foundations and endowments and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. This business really is working directly with private clients. So it's much more labor intensive. And we think that um, as successful as we've been in terms of uh, capital deployment, I think if you compared it to what other firms are doing in terms of uh, the funds that they're ra- that they're raising 
it kind of is a drop in the bucket. So we think that our combination of being large enough to put institutional attention and institutional resources on this strategy, but small enough that uh, that the the, uh, the 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 capital raising efforts that we've been uh, going through still can move the needle for us. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. So, Pete, I wanted you to um, you mentioned already a little bit about your investment strategy, largely multifamily, some secondary markets, some just outside downtown locations. But could you dive into that a little bit more for my listeners and me right now? If you could tell us a little bit more about your investment strategy in terms of asset classes, locations, and the markets that you focus on. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we, we like secondary cities. And, you know, I'll just give you an example, a couple of examples. You know, we, we um, you know, we're, we're looking for places with high occupancy, strong absorption, good population growth, and robust household formation. And we've got a terrific research team, and they're based in Salt Lake City, and they're you're doing all the work to determine where, there, there's, uh, where, where there's attractive opportunities to invest. But then, as I said, we overlay that with the bridge property management people who are on the ground in our markets, you're giving us those anecdotes. You know, so when you think about it, anybody can buy data. We buy data, and we really don't have an edge over anyone in that department. But we think it's great when we can overlay that data with the information that we're getting from our bridge property management folks. You know, for instance, you know, it used to take us nine days to rent out a unit in this city, and now it's only taking two. That might mean we have some pricing power here. You know, or uh, you know, the multifamily, uh, the, the multifamily property down the street is adding a pool in order to remain competitive. Maybe we need to do the same thing. So just having that information and those boots on the ground, we think, is really important. And then that helps us decide where to invest. So you know, let me give you an example of a city that, that we like is Austin. Um, you know, multifamily occupancy is in the 90s. Um, it's one of the country's most educated populations. They've got a really terrific range of employers. Apple's second largest campus after Cupertino is there. And that's five to 15,000 jobs. It's growing uh, the, the number of jobs in, in the city. Samsung, GM, Facebook, IBM, Allergan Pharmaceutical all have a meaningful presence. And you probably heard a couple of months ago, Elon Musk said that he's moving some operations to uh, some Tesla operations to Austin as well. So we love the city because we feel we've got the wind at our back. I'm sure on previous episodes of your podcast, I'm sure you've talked about how the cities and the opportunity zones were determined using the 2010 census, right? So we're using our 2020 eyes and ears to evaluate these properties that were deemed to be a little bit below par 10 years ago. And in a lot of these cities, uh, they've grown so much that the place that was below par 10 years ago is now well within the path of progress. So, you know, for instance, in Austin, we particularly, particularly like the area uh, just north of downtown where we can build highly amenitized low rise that we think will be very competitive in that market. And then on top of that, rental price appreciation um, in Austin has been very strong. Between 2010 and 2020, it was about 3%. And when we're doing our underwriting, we can plug in rental growth that's lower than that and still get to our target returns. Yeah, very good. That makes sense. Uh, my next question here for anyone who may be listening and has access to some real estate deals that they think you may be interested in or your, your team at Bridge may be interested in, could you tell us a little bit more about your deal pipeline and what you would say to those folks who have access to real estate deals? Ultimately, what are you looking for in a property? And, and I guess a follow-up question to that would be, how many properties are you looking at and ultimately acquiring for development? Maybe you can go into the size of the deals that you look at too. 
Yeah, so um, so far over the last you know, almost two years now, so we've been actively in this basically since the beginning of 2019, um, we have uh, deployed or committed uh, almost $1.5 billion of assets, and we've done that in uh, 28 properties that represent probably about 21 or 22 markets. Um, our average uh, equity check is about 45 or so million dollars. And when you consider that we are um, applying 50% um, debt to equity, that obviously that takes us to maybe a $90 million um, uh, total uh, capitalization of, of the properties. So $90 million deals, $45 million equity checks generally. Um, and our pipeline is really robust. So as I mentioned, we have, uh, we've got a 17 person team. So those 17 people, and you know, that goes from senior all the way down to junior people, and they're spending every minute of their working day thinking about opportunity zones, speaking to brokers and developers and architects and debt providers and getting on planes and visiting properties. Um, so because we've got that 17 person team and because word has gotten out that we've got capital to deploy, um, you know, we have seen a lot of deal flow. So as I said, about 28 commitments so far, and we've seen over 600 properties. And right now we've got a deal pipeline that's uh, you know, probably about 20 assets that we can, that we either have under, um, that, that we have under control, meaning we can move forward if we choose to, or in various stage of diligence where we're either, you know, going to throw those properties out or move them into that under control category. So uh, the, the team has been extremely, uh, extremely busy. And this really is, it, it's kind of challenging because, you know, just as we are working, doing our job in the capital markets group, they're looking to deploy capital. So um, it, it is very much matching dollars to deals. And, you know, we're getting toward the end of the year here when we're going to be finishing everything up. So um, it, it's, it's definitely very busy on both sides of that coin. I can only imagine, yeah. And certainly doesn't sound like uh, there's any shortage of deal flow coming across your desk, which is great news for you. You uh, kind of have a good, good uh, pick of the uh, pick of your choice there, which is great. Uh, going forward, though, you know, considering the coronavirus pandemic and our response to it, and people's skittishness about uh, getting back to normal, how are you expecting to fill up these properties that you're developing? So. What we're intending to do is we've got a, a strategy of 100% development. So it's going to take us 18 to 24 months to build these properties, another 18 to 24 months to get the properties occupied, stabilizing cash flowing. So yes, we're, we're living through a very difficult period right now and um, you know, very challenging, but as I said, occupancy has remained very strong and rental payments have, have been good. Um, but I think one of the good news pieces here is that we will be delivering these properties in a couple of years when we anticipate that the, the pandemic will be well behind us. And um, so we are forging forward and we think that um, by investing in places and, and developing in places where occupancy is high, job growth is strong, uh, absorption is high, we think we're, we're, well, we're putting our, ourselves and our clients in a, in a, very, uh, in a very good position to succeed. Um, ultimately, uh, we also just point to the fact, like I mentioned before, that our multifamily, um, our multifamily uh, rental payments have been really strong. So even in a period where we have 
a, a global a global crisis, economic problems, um, and and health problems, people tend to pay their rent. Especially, perhaps this might actually be helping us when we're when when you are sheltering in place, and you realize that gosh, you know, I'm, I'm sheltering in place. I'm spending all this time at home. I don't want to be. I don't want to have my landlord chasing me. So in a world where we have uh, an eviction moratorium, it really just speaks to the durability and reliability of multifamily. Yeah, those are all very good points. And that's amazing, too, that number that you cited earlier. Did you say 94% lease collection rate? Yeah, that's, that's uh, what we've been seeing. And during that time, you know, if you think about our, our value-add multifamily business, where we buy existing multifamily, we improve it over time, typically over a four- or five-year time period, Obviously, we go into each of those assets with a business plan, and our business plan underwrites for a certain amount of, rent, uh, of occupancy growth. Across our multifamily, uh, 40,000 multifamily units, we're seeing our uh, occupancy move up a little bit more quickly than we anticipated it would. So we're going up faster than underwriting, and the way that we attribute that is that we're seeing our move-ins are basically on target, but our move-outs have slowed down. And, and we think that so having a good place to live, living in a in a in a in a monetized apartment building, um, you know, in in a, in in a place that you like to live, uh, we think is really valuable to people, and um, and that's why we think having our opportunity zone strategy be largely multifamily is the right way to go. Yeah, it's a good good theory to have there, and interesting how it's unfolded over the past several months for you. That's really really neat how high your lease collection rate is, has remained even through this pandemic and the high unemployment numbers and what's resulted with the economy. A very encouraging sign, to say the least. I want to shift gears now and talk about capital raising with you. I'm curious, Bridge being one of the biggest players in the Opportunity Zone space, having deployed uh, nearly $1.5 billion, where, do you, where is your money coming from? How do you raise your money? Which capital channels are you having the most success in? So we've, over the last decade or so, we've forged some really strong relationships with some of the leading wirehouses, banks, and wealth managers. So, um, and, and they've, they've offered some of our other strategies to their clients. Um, so we went back to them and we started speaking to other uh, national wirehouses and, and banks. And we just laid out what our strategy was for Opportunity Zones. And we started doing this in 2018, uh, you know, when uh, when things were still coming together, a lot of the rules were still widely misunderstood, and uh, it really is a partnership. You know, so obviously the, the 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 institutions that we're speaking to have clients who have the capital gains, and they're looking for an opportunity zone solution. And as you probably know. These uh, wealth managers have a very robust diligence process. It takes months, sometimes quarters, uh, it to have your strategy get approved by them. They do a full underwriting of your strategy, your team, um, operational due diligence. Uh, you know, look at the back office, look at the history of the firm. Um, you know, who who controls the capital, et cetera. And um, when we've we've been very, we've worked really hard, and I think we've had uh, some good fortune to get approved on about half a dozen different platforms. So we partnered with them and it really is, um, especially in these times of, of no, not getting on planes and not visiting people and not getting to stand in front of a, an office of, of financial advisors, 
it really has been a lot of phone work, a lot of Zooms, a lot of emails um, to get to a place where we're having all these conversations and we're, we're getting in front of the right people and, um, and, and we're just laying out our value proposition. And we just point to the fact that we've got a long history in multifamily. We've uh, put the resources behind this. We put the, you know, we've committed to this with a 17 person team and we've seen over 600 properties and we talk a lot about geography and where we're investing. You know, the way I like to think of it is, it's kind of a four question decision tree, right? It's, uh, do I want to invest in opportunity zones? And obviously I have to be willing to give up control of my money for 10 years to do it. And am I willing, for, am I willing to make that trade off? If so, what do I want to invest in? And obviously we're biased. We think that a largely multifamily portfolio um, is, is, the, is the way to go. Who should I invest with? And of course we're biased. We think it should be bridge. And then the last question is, where do I want to invest? Because, you know, the old, the old cliche is location, location, location. So we, we like, we spend a lot of time making the case for our cities, talking about the dynamics, why we think we have the wind at our back, why we think that this is the place. Uh, these are the places where we will have, uh, we'll have success. And obviously, if we have success, our clients will. And uh... Are you raising capital solely through these wirehouse platforms, or do you ever have individual investors coming directly to you? We're, we're, most of our capital is coming from those relationships. We, we do have clients coming direct, but most of our client, most of the most of it's coming from those relationships. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, shifting gears again, I want to go back to a point you made earlier. You, you said you were getting into some workforce and affordable housing strategy. Curious uh, how that plays into your opportunity zone strategies. Certainly, there's some overlap there. I would I would guess. Yes, um, that is the workforce and affordable housing strategy is something that has always been a part of our multifamily strategy. And then over a, a couple of years ago, probably about three three and a half years ago, one of our largest institutional clients suggested that we break it out as its own strategy, and it basically is a a, um, a social impact strategy in the real estate space. So um, it, it really, it's, it's a very interesting strategy because we cater specifically to clients, I'm sorry, to tenants who um, are making 80% of the local median income. And we make sure that at least 50% of the unit, the, the multifamily that, the units that we have uh, in, in each of these properties is affordable to people who are making 80% of the local median income. We also take a, a, a portion of our management fee and we uh, use it in work, working with local nonprofits who are putting in programming like English as a second language, financial literacy, after school soccer, and things like that to really make these workforce and affordable housing projects be a lot more than um, four walls and a roof. And what we've seen in this space is that uh, the, the occupancy remains high, and it's a very sticky tenant because they look at what they have. Obviously, they're paying a certain amount of rent. That's something you can quantify. But then they realize that they're getting this extra stuff um, from, from Bridge in, these, in, in this, this uh, programming, and they tend to stay. And that makes that um, really a, a, terrific, um, a terrific social responsible strategy. It really is doing well by doing good. And since the pandemic hit, um, we've actually upped our game in that space. So in addition to that 25 basis points, um, we've, we've actually increased that 
um, with with um, with with, uh, uh, with additional capital, and we've been helping our tenants. We've delivered over 50,000 food baskets, um, school supplies, Chromebooks. We've done over 5,000 wellness checks, um, 14,000 outreach calls to residents. So this really is a social impact strategy, and it's it's completely separate from our opportunity zone strategy. But we think that the the whole spirit around it, which is about building communities and building a nice place to live, we think helps us as we are building out our Opportunity Zone strategy. Because let's face it, that is the core of what Opportunity Zone, uh, the Opportunity Zone um, benefits were all about. Obviously, we spend a lot of time thinking about the tax benefit, but the other side of it, which is equally important, is, is creating nice places to live and creating um, nice spaces in these Opportunity Zones. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you there. I, I, and you know, I think uh, if there's some more reporting legislation on the horizon that really wants to address how the Opportunity Zone industry is actually achieving congressional intent, which is social impact and lifting residents out of poverty and creating jobs, you know, what you're doing is is definitely going to be a, a pretty good defensible strategy not only for you and, and your strategy at Bridge, but also for the Opportunity Zone industry and incentive as a whole. Uh, you mentioned your tenants a lot uh, in that previous answer. You know, you're, you're working down at the property management level in addition to being up at the capital raising level and the construction level. You mentioned vertical integration earlier. How does being a vertically integrated company really add value for your bottom line? It's important because we control the value proposition up and down the chain. So it's, it's bridge employees who are making the investments, it's bridge employees who are choosing the investments and evaluating them, and then ultimately it's bridge employees who are, um, who are interacting with the tenant, and it's one message up and down the value chain. We're, we're not negotiating with a third party to uh, when we have a challenge um, you know, in one of our markets. We're, it, it's, it really starts from the top. So we think that's important. Um, we think that it's also important because, like I said before, I, we can't have, there's no way we can have an edge when we're buying data. Anyone can buy data. It's the additional information and the anecdotes and, and, the, and the strategies that our on-the-ground people are, are, are executing to help make these better places to live, whether it's workforce and affordable housing, office, um, seniors, our standard multifamily strategy, or obviously opportunity zones when we ultimately fill these properties up and, um, and we have tenants. So we think that uh, it's, it's always important, but perhaps never more important than today. And like I said before, uh, obviously the multifamily as an asset class has been doing well uh, through this crisis, better than people might've expected. And we like to think that on the margin, part of that success is because we're vertically integrated and because of those relationships we have with the tenants. Very good. Well, Pete, I want to thank you for joining us today. We're getting toward the end of our interview, but before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Bridge? Yes, yeah, so go to our website, uh, www.bridgeig.com. So Bridge IG is Bridge Investment Group, bridgeig.com. And we've got some great information about our teams and our strategies. Our research team publishes a terrific weekly piece that helps you sort through the week's economic news. You know, for instance, we'll talk about GDP expectations, the expected COVID recovery, 
um, how small business is doing. So we, it's not just a real estate piece, it's an economic piece that our, our um, research team does a great job on. Um, we recently wrote a terrific uh, white paper about the office market uh, because uh, obviously people have a lot of very strong opinions about office, but office is not just one thing. It really varies by, uh, by, by city and where you are. Geography is super important. And the, the suburban office market and the second tier city office market really does, we think, have an edge as we go forward and we move forward through, through COVID. Um, we've also done a couple of very interesting blog entries about qualified opportunity zones. One of them, um, we, we cover a lot of the same ground we covered today, how we're, we're um, executing our strategy through uh, the pandemic. And we also published one that compared 1031 investing um, to QOZs, obviously two terrific tax breaks. We broke them down and, and compared them, did a good compare and contrast. Perfect. Thank you. Well, uh, for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Pete and I discussed on today's show. And I will be sure to link to bridgeig.com as well as the insights section of their website where they have featured a lot of their weekly briefings. And I'll also link to the blog entries that Pete just mentioned and that white paper on Office as well. Pete, again, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join me and my listeners. Thank you. Jimmy, thank you so much. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the time and attention. Absolutely. Thanks, Pete. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.